Okay, so now I think we should come into the, my own presentation. And yeah, first I have to say that I am not a climate scientist. <laughs> I'm not a policy expert. In the past, I've given like one-hour presentations on the Buddhist perspectives on the climate issue. And then... Regina persuaded me to take a whole day program. Then about a month ago when I looked, I have a whole day to present on this topic. Then I wrote to Peace saying, I have to back out. I don't think I could do it. (laughs) (laughs) But she persuaded me to stay in. And so I've done some more investigations, research, and brought together a number of of angles on the climate situation. So in the morning, I'm going to do the more factual side of the issue looking at where we are in terms of the current climate situation. Then in the afternoon, we'll do more sort of looking, what I would say, looking deeper into the underlying causal matrix of the climate crisis from a Buddhist perspective and what are some of the possible solutions and what are some of the actions that we can take to make our contribution towards redeeming the climate and human life on this planet. And I found very helpful in doing my research a particular book that I would recommend. It's called Climate Change, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's by Joseph Rahm. He runs a website called Climate Progress, which is very informative. And this book is extremely informative. And so I've taken bits and pieces of the information that he gives, as well as from other research that I did, and integrated it into this presentation. Okay, so I've collected some information which will be helpful for understanding the nature of the climate, of climate change that's taking place. So the climate, what's called global warming or climate change, is caused by escalations of carbon dioxide and some other gases into the atmosphere. And these gases exercise what is called the greenhouse gas effect which is that of trapping heat within the Earth's atmosphere. And by trapping that heat in the atmosphere, it causes the Earth to warm up. And then that is what is the primary driver of climate change. So at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere was 280 parts per million. So that would really be the ideal level for a sustainable planet. Okay, and then as industrialization developed and as the, based on the burning of fossil fuels, originally coal, then oil, now natural gas, more and more carbon was emitted into the atmosphere. And so as of December 2017, the latest statistic that I have, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere was 407 parts per million. And there's fluctuations in the amount of carbon, but now it's pretty much fluctuating between 410 and 400. So at a base level, it's above 400. And geophysicists say that the level of carbon in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, must come down 
to 350 parts per million if the Earth's temperature, the increase of temperature, is to remain below two degrees. And so this is why a famous and very prominent climate organization uses this number 350 as its name, 350.org. But actually, more recently, I've heard the climate scientists are saying that it's not enough to keep the Earth's temperature increase to two degrees centigrade, because even at that amount of warming, the sea level rise is going to continue to the point where it inundates and completely engulfs the small island nations and where the sea begins to encroach much too much upon the coastal regions. And so they are saying that we should really bring the level of carbon down to something like 325, 320 parts per million. Okay, so by 2016, the Earth's global average temperature had risen 1.2 degrees Celsius, or 2.2 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. And sometimes if you turn to some of the right-wing websites and the climate change denier websites, you'll come across this constant uh, talking point that, oh, the climate is not getting warmer, these are just chance fluctuations in the temperature. Some will say, oh, even the climate has been getting cooler over the last few years. But in fact, statistics indicate that most warming has occurred since 1970. And so we have the 10 hottest years on record since 1998. So you could see 1998 is here. I have to use the cursor. Okay, so 1998 is here. And so this talking point is generally based upon the fact that in 2012, the average temperature was lower than 1998. And so on that basis, they'll say, oh, the temperature has not been rising since 1998. But in fact, you can see that there's generally a constant upward drift of the temperature with a natural variation. But we have 2014, I think, had become the hottest year on record till 2015 surpassed 2014. 2016 was even hotter. And I believe 2017 is even hotter than 2016 or if it's not hotter, then it might be just a little bit below. But it's, you can see that these last few years ha- are extremely, show an extremely discernible rise in the global average temperature. So then what I have here, that carbon pollution has driven up the global average temperature for more than a century. And so the 10 hottest years ever recorded have all occurred since 1998. And this comes from the website called Climate Central, which brings together the findings of climate scientists. Okay, then as for the future, there are different scenarios possible depending on the degree to which we take action to reduce our carbon emissions. 
So different scenarios are used by in computers to model possible future outcomes. And so here in this graph, we have projections to the year 2100, three different possible outcomes. So one is called business as usual. This is as if, if we continue on our current trajectory. And I have to say, probably as most of you know, that well, this table, I think, was prepared something in 2000, maybe in 2016, before the Trump administration came into, into power. And now they are doing everything in their capacity, not only to adhere to business as usual, but to give a big bump to business so that we're even exceeding the level of business as usual. The latest measure has been to open up or propose opening up a billion acres of <clears throat> off-coast territory to fossil fuel exploration and extraction. Okay, so, whoops. So if we continue on track with business as usual, the temperature is projected to rise to 4.2 degrees Celsius. which would be horrific. In fact, down below, I'm going to show some of the consequences of what will happen if the temperature rises that high, pretty much to anticipate what we'll see, pretty much means the end of human civilization as we've known it. Okay, then there's a projection based on national proposals. These mean the proposals that have been made by countries under the Paris Climate Accord. These are called something like the nationally intended, there's an expression that I always forget, nationally intended, we'll see it below. But these, basically these are the proposals what each country makes for how they are going to go about reducing carbon emissions. So if all of those proposals were fulfilled then we would reach an increase in global temperature of 3.3 degrees, which is also going to completely destabilize whole societies and nations. And the proper goal should be to hold, the last one here, to hold temperature increase to a maximum of 2 degrees, but more desirable would be 1.5 degrees Celsius. Okay, this table just shows the different temperature increases and the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, the increase that they will entail. So even a 1.5 Celsius degree increase will still lead to something like 425 parts per million. Now we have, as I said, 407 parts per million. At two degrees Celsius increase, the amount of carbon will go to 470 parts per million. Uh, this was the expression, the intended nationally determined <laughs> contributions. So that is the term used under this United Nations framework for reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. 
that all countries were asked to publish and to commit to. The U.S. had made its proposal, but now a president has drawn the U.S. out of the Paris Accord, so we're no longer under any obligation to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So this is the significance of the current high level of carbon emissions. I took this from the NASA website. And I think it's operating now under maybe under a different name. So it says that in May 2013, the CO2 levels in the air reached a level of 400 parts per million. And that is the first time in human history that this milestone has been passed. And the Earth the last time that carbon levels in the atmosphere were that was that high was three to five million years ago. So at that time, the Earth was a very different place from the Earth that we inhabit now, but at least one respect that was similar, and that is that was the last time that carbon dioxide levels were as high as they are today. And that was before our early ancestors or the early predecessors to humans were wielding stone weapons. Um, The world was a few degrees hotter back then and melted ice put sea levels tens of meters higher. And so this climate scientist says we're in a new era and it's going fast. We're going to touch 410 pretty soon. But that was a few years ago. We've already touched 410. And how are we going to fare in a world that warms by four degrees, four degrees Celsius from the Journal of the British Royal Society, quoted by Joseph Rahm in that book. They say that in such a four degree world, the limits for human adaptation are likely to be exceeded in many parts of the world, while the limits for adaptation for natural systems would largely be exceeded throughout the world. But there are such subtle and intricate, complex connections between different constituents in this web of life that when other natural systems are decimated or compromised to a large degree, it's going to have very serious, severe impacts upon human life, impacts that we can't fully foresee at present. I don't like to sound like a prophet of doom. I like to be saying that Everything is going to be hunky-dory and we're going to flourish and thrive. But you know, this is the first noble truth that we have to face. Having a lot of trouble tra- keeping track of my cursor. Okay, now I compiled some information on climate impacts. <laughs> I feel a little nervous giving this presentation now that this woman introduced herself as a environmental scientists. (laughs) So please don't hesitate to correct anything that's incorrect here. (laughs) Okay, so first we begin with some of the extreme weather events due to climate change which are taking place now. And so the first of these 
okay, is heat waves, heat waves becoming longer, stronger, more frequent, um, so that the ratio of extremely hot days to extremely cold days has risen sharply since the 1950s. And in some parts of the world, even including parts of the United States, the temperatures are are rising to levels which are almost stretching the capacity of human beings for adaptation. And this is particularly the case in parts of the world where people can't just step into a room and turn on the air conditioner. Last summer, the temperature in Pakistan, parts of Pakistan hit 130 degrees Fahrenheit. India has had temperatures high in the 120s to the extent that even the asphalt roads have been melting. California, even in Arizona, I think New Mexico has had, have had extremely high temperatures into the 120s. Okay, another consequence will be more intense droughts caused by the drying out and heating up of the land with reduced precipitation. In fact, there's going to be much more variation in different parts of the world. Some parts will be subjected to more intense precipitation, flooding, deluges. Other parts will have sustained long-term droughts. And some parts will have alternation of the two, but not the kind of balance between normal dry weather and normal rainy weather that we've been accustomed to throughout, throughout history. Okay, more intense droughts. And then the climate change worsens droughts by causing earlier snowmelt, thus reducing a crucial source of water. This is an extremely important part principle for many parts of the world that depend for their water on the water that's coming from the rivers. And those rivers depend upon the glaciers. And the glaciers, say in the Himalayan mountains, in the Andes, in the Alps, are shrinking and they're melting earlier. And so the water comes down earlier, not at the time which is normally assigned for irrigation for agriculture. And even the intensity of the streams is reducing. And so as the supply of water diminishes, it's going to have a traumatic impact on agriculture in China, Southeast Asia, India, um, the countries around the Andes. Even in the United States, I think California is the Agriculture in California depends on snowmelt from the, the Sierra Nevada mountains, that mountain range, to the east of California. Okay, then one thing that we're seeing almost daily now are wildfires driven by more intense and longer heat waves. When there are these extended droughts, then the plant life, the vegetation becomes drier the moisture, there's less moisture in the soil. And so it becomes the vegetation, forest, woods, any kind of collections of vegetation becomes much more vulnerable to, to wildfires, sometimes caused by human negligence, sometimes just by strong winds, which cause the friction and a spark to arise. And when the plants are very dry, 
and brittle, it's easy for them to catch fire. And now because of the longer hot seasons, the wildfire seasons are much longer. And so we've seen in Washington State, Oregon, Canada, Southern Canada, and now in the Los Angeles area, just last October in Santa Rosa, California, large tracts of land just burned to the ground. Thousands of people losing their homes and very expensive, costly homes. And then flooding so that we're having more intense floods due to more water vapor in the air. So that now we're having, it said, a hundred year flood every two years. Like one of the consequences of a warmer climate is that more water evaporates and collects in the atmosphere. So then when it rains, all of that moisture comes pouring down. And that's why we have these floods which are inundating whole cities and towns, residential areas. And then snowstorms also become more severe. So it's no proof against the reality of climate change to say we've never had snowstorms like this. This shows climate change is just a hoax because in fact more intense snowstorms are proof of the reality of climate change. Since there's more water in the atmosphere, so when the air turns extremely cold and then precipitation starts, that moisture is going to come down in the form of masses of snow. And then global warming is also interfering with the normal wind currents, the jet stream, so that the atmosphere traps rain clouds in a limited area and prevents them from moving away. And that that causes much heavier inundation with the rainfall. This is what happened with Hurricane Harvey in Houston last, last summer. The hurricane, the rain clouds came over Houston and they weren't able, usually a hurricane will come, sweep through and move upwards to more northern areas. But in the case of Houston, the wind currents kept those rain clouds, sort of buffeted them around over Houston for three or four days so that the rain just fell continuously day after day and the water levels rose. Okay, then hurricanes. Hurricanes themselves are not caused by global warming or climate change. They're a natural phenomena due to other causes, but because of climate change, hurricanes are becoming more severe, more devastating. So this is because one of the consequences of global warming is rising sea levels. So the sea is higher. Then the sea surface temperatures are higher, so the surface of the sea is warmer, and that is what really intensifies the hurricanes. And then there's more water vapor in the atmosphere, so when the hurricane starts, that water vapor will come down in the form of rain. And then the Arctic is warming much faster than the rest of the planet. This is called Arctic or polar amplification. And so this amplification accelerates the loss of ice in the Arctic, including Greenland, the Greenland ice sheet, 
And so this is accelerating sea level rise and worsening storm surges. And then also that polar amplification that is responsible for changing the wind currents, the jet stream, and that is causing the droughts, deluges, and heat waves to get stuck, aggravating their impact. There's something feedback loops that I had. I'm going to make this material available. I won't go into them now because I want to go into the long-term impacts of climate change. Future impacts. And these are really continuations of trends that have started at present. Okay, so we have sea level rise and it's found that the West Antarctic ice sheet and Greenland, those are the major blocks of ice on the planet, or sheets of ice on the planet. They have been melting, their rates of melting, of ice loss loss has doubled over the past five years. So experts are predicting that the high end of global sea level rise four or five feet by the end of the century, that this will be the the reality rather than the lower or middle levels. And even if we follow business as usual, the rise can be even worse, even up to 10 feet of sea level rise. And the consequence of this is that superstorm sandy type events could become commonplace on the East Coast Hundreds of millions of people, even up to a billion people living along the coast will have to move because of the threat of storm surges. There will be mass migration from the coastal regions inland and from low-lying countries to other countries. And, you know, when there's mass migration, then that will also intensify civil conflict, social conflict. And then major cities... I'm afraid New York City is in the target, is one of the targets as well, will become unsustainable or subject to a lot of danger and may have to be abandoned. Okay, sea level rise also will cause salt water to infiltrate the coastal agricultural areas. And so climate change will cause rivers to become more salty leading to shortages of drinking water and irrigation water, and thereby to reduction in crop yields. And here I had a map which I found on the internet, which show the regions that will be most affected by the sea level rise and the inundation of water into the coastal regions. You can see the east coast and west coast of the USA will be affected, So much of Europe will be affected, Southeast Asia, the Pacific Islands, parts of Australia, um, Eastern, Western Africa. Okay, there'll be increase in atmospheric water vapor, which will lead to more deluges and more severe storm surges. So that it's said that The trend will continue until roughly half of all hurricanes are category four or five hurricanes. I think Hurricane Katrina, was that a category four? 
it was a category five and the Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, I think was category five. And I heard some meteorologists were saying we might even have to start a new level of hurricane, hurricane level category six. Okay, droughts will become worse caused by reduced rainfall, higher temperatures. One third of the Earth's arable inhabited land faces a near permanent drying out this century. Desert, desertification, the turning of fertile land into desert will increase. And so by 2060, what's called dust bowlification will sweep over large swaths of land in the United States, the vegetable producing areas, Brazil, large parts of Africa, the Middle East, Australia, Southeast Asia, the breadbasket regions of China and Southern Europe, and then I had a diagram showing that where that's going to take place. And you can see here, there's an abs- really aspect of climate justice here. Let me see if I could get the whole map. Okay, the green are the areas that are going to be winners through global warming temporarily. This goes up to 2080. This is the projection of the, for the year 2080. So. Canada, northern Canada, or Canada, the, some of the northern states of the United States will gain in agricultural productivity, as will the Soviet Union, northern Europe. But the parts that are going to be hit most severely, the southern United States, Central America, South America, see Brazil and the Andes countries, Africa will have extremely severe consequences. Africa, Southeast, uh, Southern Asia, Iran, Pakistan, India, Southeast Asia, Australia. And the aspect of climate justice here, sort of temporarily, is that it's the northern countries which are most responsible for carbon emissions, but it's the countries of the south, the global south, which are least responsible for carbon emissions, which will have to endure the most severe consequences. But I said this is temporary gain because if carbon emissions continue beyond 2080, then drought conditions are going to stretch upwards until the North is also losing, becomes the loser. So everybody will lose in the long run. Okay, so this is droughts. Then we have the health impacts And this is from the British medical journal Lancet. It says climate change is the biggest global health threat of the 21st century. So some of the consequences will be infections due to insect-borne diseases, deaths due to heat waves, reduced food and water leading to malnutrition and diarrhea diseases, injuries and deaths caused by climate calamities, lung diseases from breathing particles released by wildfires, and then tropical diseases will migrate to the temperate zones, it's already occurring, and then it's possible that through attempts to adapt, new lethal microbes will emerge. I had found another chart showing the impact of climate change on human health 
see if we can increase that. So here we have like the direct causal factors in the center, then some of the direct results of these causal factors, and then the consequences of these causal factors in the outer rim. We don't have to go through this in detail. As I said, I'll make these, this material available to all the participants. Okay, there'll be an impact on human productivity since in extremely hot weather, outdoor labor, especially amongst agricultural workers, will become unfeasible because of the extreme heat. And we have to remember that these people, the great majorities in the poor countries, won't be able to go into their house and turn on their air conditioners. They'll have to endure that intense heat, and many there'll be many deaths on that account. Then the great challenge, even today, but especially by mid-century when we have nine billion people, will be feeding all of these people. And yet dust bowl conditions will sweep over many of the Earth's major agricultural regions. And already the key aquifers, supplies of water are being drained. The river systems are shrinking because of the reduction in glaciers. And so that will become a big challenge. And then as we have these environmental, as we're facing these environmental challenges, this will create strife in civil society. So the UK government's chief scientist in 2009 said, the perfect storm of food shortages, scarce water, insufficient energy resources will unleash public unrest, cross-border conflicts, mass migration as people flee from the worst affected regions. And when there's migration, then there's going to be I would say that that will give the incentive for people to support right-wing extremist governments to exclude the migrants, to reject them. That will cause perhaps the rise of more tyrannical regimes. States will collapse, failed states. Dictators and tyrants will take over. And more hostility between countries, even increasing the risks of all-out war. And then loss of biodiversity, current rates of extinction are said to be about 100 times the background or normal rate that they call the current period the sixth great extinction. And this mass extinction is driven by other factors, not only climate change, by land clearance, chemicals, use of chemicals, overfishing, overhunting, selective breeding of crops and animals, But as the rate of global warming speeds up, then the climate may change too quickly for many species to adapt. And as I said, the web of life is extremely, has these extremely subtle and intricate interconnections. And so we never know what type of living form, living being serves as an indispensable conditions for human life to flourish. We see this with the bees, which are the pollinators, because of the use of chemical um, insecticides, pesticides, the bee population is dropping, and they are responsible for pollinating many fruits, vegetables, nuts. 
Yeah, so that takes care of the, the morning presentation. <laughs> so, I, uh, <laughs> so maybe this is the dark side when we come to the afternoon, then we start seeing the light of hope. So don't think that monk's a drag. <laughs> wow. How grim. <laughs> Okay, so we will t- take a lunch break now, and then we'll come back, re- reassemble at 1.30, and then we're going to do at 1.30 the four elements meditation again, but in a different way. So we're actually going to do it three times today, each way, each time in a different way, sort of progressing till we find the way the elements are calling us to our transformative mission. Okay, so let us then move over. And as I said, I will make these files available to everybody so that you have the information on, on hand. <laughs>